Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Bailey. Grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day, and we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. Grab a seat. Well, I know I speak on behalf of Bailey as well. It's a joy for us to be able to uh, do Sundays like this. This is a little bit more of an intimate setting uh, where we get to help in the process of discipleship with your children as we do intergenerational worship. So parents, thank you for letting us uh, have your kiddos in here with us. I know we have a lot of fun uh, in here. Um, So we're gonna be expecting some, uh, I call them little little people amens. So... um, I just hope they don't amen more than you guys do. So, um, But if you guys have your Bibles, be finding your way to uh, Exodus 21 through 11. Bailey mentioned this in our call to worship. We just finished our Advent series where Bailey faithfully taught uh, on the Lord's love for us. And really, this is just going to be picking up where he left off. Um, had a thought to myself this week is if I could have just a free two weeks to teach on anything Uh, what would be healthy for any local body, any bride of Christ to ever uh, hear taught. Um, And as I was reading, Bailey got a really, really cool, uh, Bailey and Abby, that is, uh, Christmas present is a a gift of of liturgy, Reformation worship. Just thumbing through it this morning, just seeing uh, that almost every Lord's Day, faithfully, our, our church forefathers would teach through something called the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Whether it be at the end of the service or at the beginning, they would always have that as a part of their worship. So uh, started thinking about through that and um, was really convinced and convicted that that's uh, a good place for us to start the new year. As we wrap up uh, 2019 and we enter into 2020, of looking at the Ten Commandments, but specifically in the Great Commandment. So as you guys are turning there, I'm going to read uh, Matthew 20, 36 through 40 here, where we find this great commandment. It reads this, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, he being Jesus, You shall love your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Jesus is saying the whole entire Old Testament can be built on that commandment to love your God and to love your neighbor. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at that first half, and and next week we'll continue as we look at the second half of loving our neighbor. Uh, But this morning, I think uh, there's something we have to see within those great commandments um, as you guys are turning your way to Exodus 21 through 11. Uh, the first thing we see that uh, we're called to do is to love our God with all of our heart. This is our emotions. This is our, our, our thoughts, our feelings here. The second thing is we're to love our God with all of our soul. This is the immaterial part of your being. It's your soul that God breathed into you. You're to love your God with all of your mind. This is your reasoning. This is your logic. This is your intellect. Uh, if you were to read the uh, same account in Luke chapter 10, Luke would add uh, that you should love your God with all of your strength. That's your physical capabilities. Another way to say this is you're to love your God with all of your all. To love your God with all of your all. But the question we have to ask ourselves at the outset this morning is, what do you do when all of your all is all wrong? 
What do you do when all of your all is all wrong? Because you see that we're called to love our God with all of our hearts, but what does Scripture say about our hearts? It's that they're deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What about our soul? We're called to love our God with all of our soul, but we improperly value our soul. Mark 8, 36 would say this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? We're called to love our God with all of our mind, but don't our minds trend naturally towards evil continually? We see this in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What about our strength? It's feeble and eventually fails, doesn't it? Psalm 71, 9 would say, Do not cast me off in a time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're asking that question of how do we love our God? So how do I love God is the question we're going to be looking at these verses as we exposit our way through Exodus 21 through 11, asking that question because if we're supposed to love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we're feeble, we're broken, we're depraved as human beings apart from Christ, how, how do we do this well? So as an encouragement for us at the beginning of this, we have to see that we cannot love God without God. Save for God entering into the fray and giving us his spirit and giving us the facilities to love him, to worship him rightly, we are left hopeless. So as we finish out this year, we've got to see if we're hoping to love God that we are dependent first and foremost on the grace that comes from God to love him. We can't think that we can love God rightly by our own emotions. How about your own emotions this week? Have they not at times been up and down and fleeting? And have they not been a roller coaster of emotions as you're having to go from one family event to another family event to another family event and the kids are just screaming in the back seat and then you just want them to sit still for one second? Emotions can range from sorrow to depression to anxiety to happiness in a moment. We can't trust our emotions. What about our own thoughts? We can't come to God trying to love God with our own thoughts. Our thoughts, as Scripture would say, apart from grace, are wicked. They, we, we can't trust our own thoughts or emotions. So when we say this this morning, we have to see that we cannot love God without God. And God is gracious in, in giving us the answer to the problem. If we want to know how to love God, he's given us the solution in the Ten Commandments. This is what we were talking about here at the outset, that the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are God's directions of how we're to love him. I don't know about you, but that was an encouragement to me this week as I was hoping to see this, is that if I'm called to love God, I don't have to do it in my own strength or my own ability, but God has given me clear passages in his word as to how to do this. So we're going to look at these verses together there in Exodus and answer that question of how do I love God. So Father, we're asking for grace this morning. God, we're asking for you to be glorified. So God, I pray that more than anything as we wrap up this year and enter into the next that we would see how preeminent it is to love you. God, if, as you sent Christ, very God of God, and walked this earth, and you gave us your word, and you said that all of the law and prophets can be hung on loving our God and loving our neighbor, how vitally important is it for us? 
So God, I, I pray that your word would show us rightly how we're to worship you because we could ask 50 different people their definition of love and get 50 different answers. So God, I just pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted this morning about our love for you, that you would encourage us, that you would exhort us, that we would be able to see you through these commandments this morning and why there's such a joy and such a grace from you. So I pray that you would give me the words to encourage your flock and your church this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we're gonna see here in these first three verses is a command to love God preeminently. A command to love God preeminently. Read along with me, verse one. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now our Jewish uh, friends would know this as the great Shema, I am the Lord your God, that he is Yahweh, that is his name. You see what God is doing here is he is calling the Israelites out of a pantheistic or uh, pluralistic uh, religion of worshiping multiple gods into a monotheistic, that he is alone God, not as if though there are other gods, but in this culture they would have been worshiping multiple other ones. But notice what he says before me. No other gods before me in verse three. We see this command is to have a preeminent place where God is supposed to be in our hearts. You see, God sees all things. Everything is laid before him. He's saying there is to be no other God save for him. This is who we are to worship. So if you're looking to worship God rightly as we wrap up this year and come into the next year in your everyday life, that God should be on not only just the center of your life, as we so often say, but all in all. In everything you do, God is to be your great treasure. As one of our... uh, church brethren that we love, John Piper would say he's most known for is uh, saying that we are to treasure Christ and he is spot on there because this is what the first commandment is requiring of us. It's requiring of us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and to worship him and glorify him accordingly. We see this in Matthew 4.10, then Jesus said to him, him being Satan, be gone Satan for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. We're called to worship God alone. Now, many of us in this room uh, don't have to struggle with worshiping multiple gods. It's not something that we think as if though we're worshiping Baal or Moloch or other gods like the Israelites would have been tempted to do. But for us in this room, we have a very different but yet very real temptation in our heart to love God poorly. And we see that is what the first commandment is also forbidding us to do. It's the denying of the worship of God and glorifying anything else as God, save for God. Let me say that again. The first commandment is not only saying we are to worship God, but it also forbids us from worshiping anything else as God. So what is your functional God? Scripture would be very clear that there's multiple things that we put on place of God, higher than God, that we value more than God, than God himself. I love Matthew Henry and him giving us a, a clear definitive definition here of what a God is. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or dependent on, more than God, that whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of it. Anything that we treasure more, anything that we depend on more, anything that we delight in more, 
we make a God of it. So you were asking that question in this text this morning, how do I love God? Perhaps this would be helpful. You are to love God as you love your spouse, your child, your favorite leisure activity or even meal. Only your love for God is to make your love for all those other things look like hate comparatively. Your love of God should make all of your love of everything else look like hate comparatively. That is a preeminent love. That is having no other gods before him. Your love of God should make everything else in your life look like hate. So what is this for you? Pride makes a God of self. Is it your pride that wells up within you, that makes you think that you're better than you really truly are? Is your God covetousness? Covetousness makes a God of money. If we see what our brothers and sisters have and we want it more than we want God and for God to be worshiped and glorified, we're making a God of money. What about sensuality? Making a God of the belly. What if, is it, uh, whether it be of the flesh, as we uh, in this culture are so easily to look around specifically and see that sex sells? It makes a God of the flesh, of people. You see that this is really striking at the core of our human existence. This is why God has given us these commandments, and we don't unhitch ourselves from these commandments, but these commandments are given to us for joy, for reasons of worship and vitality. That God has given us these so that we can love him, and as we love God rightly, we will experience the life that we were seeking in all those other things. When you make a God of something else, it's because you think that's going to give you the most joy, the most love, the most peace. What's going on, man? Hey, good morning. But what we're saying is that God ultimately should be preeminent over all of those things. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we see here is how we're to love God is preeminently above all things. The second thing that we're going to see is a command to love God obediently. We're going to see this in verses 4 through 6. So read along here with me, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What we're seeing here is that we're called to love God obediently. What we mean by that is how God has commanded us to love him is how we are to love him. If God says there's, for the Israelites, context is to not worship me by making a carved image, that is how God has commanded it. I don't know if many of you guys know this. I think this came up in one of our sermons through Judges here recently as we're going through the book of Judges. Are you guys familiar with, when Moses goes up on the mountaintop and he's getting these t- Ten Commandments, do you guys remember what the Israelites are doing? They are, they're making a golden calf and they're worshiping this golden calf. And if we're not careful, we think that this is just idolatry worship, that they're worshiping something else that is not God. But if you notice what Aaron is doing, he is calling that calf Yahweh. He is saying this representation of this golden calf is a picture of who God is. And that is why God is so fiercely angry and jealous because he did not command them to do 
such a thing that we are called to worship God as he commands. That's why he says there should be no image of likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water underneath. What we see is a foreshadowing here that we don't need a representation of anything of God because Christ himself is the image of the invisible God as Christ came and lived that perfect life that God revealed himself to us in the second person of his trinity, in his son. That we don't have to worship God in any of our creative imaginative. We don't, yes, we can use the pictures and the words and the imagery used in scripture of a throne of like sapphire and a glass sea around the throne, but when you see God sitting on the throne, he is an all-consuming fire, he is holy. There is not an image that we can put to that. Because you see that the worship of God as any image that is not a perfect representation of him insults God because it is a reductionist at best and a false representation at worst. This is why we would disagree with many other uh, quote-unquote evangelical faiths of uh, using representations of Christ as a crucifix. Because there we only see Christ as the suffering servant, yet we do not see him as he is, as the conquering king. So as we worship God, we're to do so obediently. We love him as he has called us to love him. We don't have to look too far around outside of our relationships to know this is true, is that we love others as they ask us to love them. I can tell you some of the deepest hurts that I've had in relationships are when I have asked someone to love me in a way to respect me or to, uh, you know, rather uh, try not to give it away too much. There's a podcast here. have to be mindful. But when we ask people to love us in a particular way and they refuse to do so, how could we say that is love? Think even more so for us in this room the reason why God has commanded us to love him in a way and that we must love him in the way that he has commanded us to do so is because we are approaching a God that we have offended. We do not get to approach God in a flippant or any other manner that we want to approach him in because we are the one that has made an offense against a holy and perfect God and he graciously does not, what we see here uh, in verse five, he does not count the iniquity of us who love him against us, but those who hate him, he counts it towards them. But God shows us grace, and he allows us to approach his throne of grace with confidence and boldness, knowing that he is our faithful high priest, and although we are sinful, he gives us the way back into right relationship with him. That is why Christ came, because we are sinful, and God is holy, and his holiness demands a righteous judgment of wrath due sin, because it is offense to him, and in so we worship and love God in the way that he's required us to do so. You see that the receiving, and the observing, and the keeping of the pure, entire second commandment here, that all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed God has appointed for us to be in this gathering. He's appointed us to worship him with spiritual songs and hymns and psalms. He's appointed for us to read his word. If we want to love God, we do exactly as he commands us to do. I've heard 
uh, a pastor that I love and respect, Vody Bauckham, talking about this idea of worshiping God and loving God and saying, so often we hear in worship, whether it be worship through song or worship through teaching of God's word or the preaching of God's word or the ordinances, uh, I love God, my heart's in the right place. I love God, my heart's in the right place. I may not be doing it exactly how you do it, but my heart's in the right place. And Vody Bauckham would say, if, if your heart is not in the place that God has commanded it to be, your heart, by definition, is not in the right place. This is what we're called to do. We see this in Deuteronomy 12, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do it. You shall not add to it or take from it. God is not doing this because he's some celestial bully, but God is holy, and as a God, he deserves to be worshiped in the way that he is commanded. You see that also in the second commandment of loving God, what is forbidden of us. We cannot worship God in any way that is not appointed. If you guys were here uh, in our missional community, our small groups a couple weeks ago, we were able to uh, uh, try to watch Spirit and Truth, which is a great documentary on um, worship. And uh, there's one part uh, in there uh, that was talking about the difference between normative and the regulative principle of worship. Now, the normatives say if God doesn't forbid it, we can do it. But what we would uh, ascribe to here in our worship of God is if God has commanded it, that's what we see that we must do. We, how much safer is it to worship in the way that God has commanded, not in a way that we have to invent, but in the way that God has told us? We get to see a very, very scary uh, representation of this in Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. I love that. This is the, one of my favorite parts about intergenerational worship we can stop and recognize that even a princess must have her castle. <laughs> so read along with me, uh, uh, or rather you can take notes here, uh, Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You see that they were doing uh, worship. They were offering a sacrifice to the Lord, but it was unauthorized. God did not ask for it. And God takes his ordinances of how he's to be worshiped and how he's to be loved so serious that he set that example early for us to see that he took their life from them. So how do you love God? Maybe, maybe this will be helpful for you. You love your God uh, in a way that should resemble that of a parent and a child. When a parent gives a child a command, the parent rightfully expects their child to follow that command because as a, as a child's parent, they are due that child's loving obedience. The child does not get to dictate how the parent receives loving obedience. And in the same way, we do not get to dictate to God how we worship him. This is obedient love. This is having no carved images before him. So uh, as we're talking about this, not many of us would uh, have a closet in our house that has a carved image of uh, some beast uh, or some bird or, or, or something along those lines but I think what we can take away from this commandment of how we're to love our God is more of the heart stature of what we're called to do, is to worship obediently. So where in your life 
Has God called you to worship him? Whether it be through leading your family in family worship and you're forsaking that joy and that duty. What else is it for you that God has commanded of you to love him well? Is it to follow his commandments? Is it to uh, be a part of a fellowship? Is it to be committed to uh, sharing God's word? Let's talk about this for a second, about sharing God's word, of evangelizing. We're called to go and to make disciples and to evangelize sharing the gospel with all nations. But do we much rather sit in a circle like this with brothers and sisters that already know God's word rather than to take God's word to those who don't know him? That is another way that we are called to love our God is to obediently do what he's asked. But can we stop for one second? As Billy loves to use that tractor on the chair, what do we love to do? Because of our sinful nature, when God asks us to do something, does our flesh not rage against that more often than not? You see, that old flesh we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that we were following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, by nature, sons of disobedient, by nature, children of wrath. So when God asks you to do something, isn't it true that all of us in this room at times feel like these commandments are burdensome? Isn't it true that at times we feel or even think that these things are robbing from us joy when really they're given to us for vitality in life, that God is so gracious towards us, the way that he commands us to love him is also what's best for us. I'll say that again. The way that God commands you to love him obediently is also what's best for you. So God is not robbing from you, but he is graciously giving to you. This is why he gave to you Christ, because we said this at the beginning, that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot obey God and follow all of his commands on our own accord. This is why Paul talks about this. This is the Apostle Paul. Follow me with this. If you guys are feeling discouraged about your obedience level in Christ, let me encourage you for a second. The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote most of the New Testament, the man who was uh, stretched, uh, oh man, I get excited. Here we go again, guys. I always get excited when talking about Paul's life because it is the picture of the gospel and the picture of a life obedient to Christ. It's suffering. He was in chains for most of his life. He was shipwrecked. He was snake-bitten. But this man, this Apostle Paul would say, that when we love God, that we will still struggle to obey. Paul says, I know what I want to do. I know what I don't want to do. And I keep doing the things I don't want to do. And I don't do the things I want to do. Woe is me. Who will free me from this flesh? And he says, praise be to God that Christ Jesus has freed me from the burden of the law that we don't no longer obey the law in order to earn salvation, but because Christ came and fulfilled the law and lived the perfect life, that he imputes to you his righteousness. And now the law becomes like honey in your mouth. It becomes like a wheat aroma in your nostrils. It becomes that soft pillow you lay your head on because it's no longer something that you have to do. It's something you get to do because your God first loved you, so you love your God. We can't do this apart from his grace. So if that's the first two things that we see in this text, that our love of God is to be preeminent above all, and it's to be obedient as he commanded, 
what we'll see here in verse 7 is that God has given us a command to love him reverently. And this is what we see in the third commandment. Read with me in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You see that using God's name in any manner besides fearfully and reverently is a violation of this command. This is what God is saying to Israel here, and this is what God is saying to us today. You see that what's required in this commandment is that God's name is to be holy and revered. Not only his name, but also his word, his works, his attributes, his sacraments. That God is so holy that his, not, it's not just his name in this commandment that is to be revered, but is everything about the person and work of God and Christ and the Spirit that he's given to us. Because you see uh, that Jesus taught us this, that God's name is to be hallowed. Matthew 6, 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So if you're trying to bring this into your realm, we probably hear about this often, about using the name of the Lord in vain. So uh, how do you love your God here? So you are to love God so reverently that even speaking his name is an act of worship. If you have reduced taking God's name to a swear word, then you have missed the point of this commandment. While it is taking his name in vain by using it as a swear word, there is so much more breadth and depth and implications of this. Because loving God's name and using it in reverence should be akin to the hushed tones and even the wonderment we speak as we see someone famous, as we're seeing someone maybe out in public that is like, oh, that's so-and-so, that's an actor or a football player, or this is so-and-so, and we're whispering underneath, and there's reverence in our tone. There should be the same, if not infinitely more reverent tone by which we use the name of our God. I think the, the Jewish men and women uh, set this pace for us so well that God's name to them was so holy they wouldn't even speak it, much less write out the full uh, lettering of it all. That his name was holy and to be revered. So in, in your life as you're looking to love your God, how often do we just flippantly use God's name? Oh, uh, and I won't even say it here but you know in your own heart, as I do, this is a conviction for me this week, is God's name is so holy and so righteous that we're to, as we sing it, is, to, is how we say it, as we read it, because God's name has so many implications. It's him as our redeemer, him as our savior, him as Lord, as our master, him as Christ, as the anointed one, the Messiah, the savior for our sins. We don't just flippantly come to our God, but we come so reverently. This is why uh, in our worship here, in our loving God in this body, why we worship God reverently through psalms and hymns and through the teaching of his word is because uh, if we're not careful, we can approach God like he is our big brother and not an all-consuming fire. We can come to him as if though we can pray to God and say, hey God, how are you? Rather than coming contritely. If you think about all throughout scripture, when men or women saw angels, what did they do? 
they fell down in fear and wonderment. And this is an angel, a created being that is nowhere near the holiness of God. How much more so should we worship our God? What was Isaiah's heart? What was his cry when he saw God high and lifted up in Isaiah 6? And the train of his robe filled the temple and his very voice shook the pillars of the foundation of the temple. He says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. I am undone. The reverence we have for God is not out of a fear that he will smite us as if we are indeed his children, but as a holy fear because of who he is and what he has done. This is why we love God in such a way that shows him that. We would never go up to the president of the United States and say, what's up, bud? How do we approach our God? You see, God has commanded you to love him reverently because it is what's best for you, because your heart needs to see the vast chasm between his holiness and your depravity. Your heart needs to see it is undone save for his holiness. And in your words and in your actions and your thoughts towards your God, either widen that gap as it should be or it closes it, and you just think God, that God did you a favor. You can pay him back for later in saving your soul from eternity in hell apart from him. This is why we take the reverent word of our God and his name so importantly. The final thing that we'll see here this morning is a command to love our God as our rest. I don't know about you guys, when I got to this part in the prep this week, uh, it was such just a deep breath in and out for my soul. Because in this season of time where it's supposed to be about worship and more often not becomes about so many other things and so much tension or turmoil springs up in this time, we get to see that we love our God as rest. Read with me in verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with, within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see that it was almost an exhaustive list there of no one is to do any type of work. You see that the Sabbath is a day that is to be full of reflection on and worship of God, not just a day off of work to sleep in or to get a head start on next week's work. This is where it cut me this week as I so often use the Lord's Day, not only as Sabbath, meaning for my own self, where I rest and do things that I like, or play golf, or uh, even good, great things like spending time with friends. But this is to be a day, not a couple hours that we dedicate to him, but a day of solemn reflection on him. Why? Because the Israelites were to remember the Sabbath day because the Lord pulled them out of, Israel, out of Egypt. Why? Because he was their redeemer. 
Why were they to remember? Because it also harkens all the way back to the creation narrative. The creation narrative that God worked for six days and rested on the seventh day because his work was complete and holy and perfect and it was a remembrance of that. But what we also get to see here, the Sabbath, as in the um, old covenants, there's always a sign of that covenant. In the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. That what we get to see here uh, in the Mosaic covenant, the sign of this covenant is Sabbath rest. So if you're entering into a covenant with God in the Old Testament, the sign that you were worshiping that God, Yahweh, and that you are part of that covenant, that promise that he will bless you, that promise that out of his offspring all the world will be blessed is circumcision. But God adds to that as he brings Moses along and shows that how we're to remain distinct, that this travels even into the new covenant with us today, that we don't uh, just simply abrogate this, we don't just do away with this, but what we do is we observe the Sabbath. Why? Because it shows that we worship and love our God, but it also makes us distinct among the people. That was an amen right there from Billy. So the reason why we worship our God is another way that we show the world that we have been saved. Is another way that when your job asks you to come in just for a couple hours on Sunday and you say no because you take so seriously the love of your God that he's commanded you to worship all day, it shows the world your priorities. It shows the world that you don't just uh, go to church, but you believe that you are the church and that Christ has redeemed you as the church, as his bride, that you are separate and distinct. So how do we observe the Sabbath? And this is, as I've already mentioned, the one that got me this week. It's a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days. Other days, things may be fine and well to do, but on the Sabbath, the purpose is to spend the whole time in public and private worship of God. But why are we to do this? Why do we do this? Like we said, it makes us distinct. But do you realize that the Sabbath is to be a delight? What we are doing right now is to be worship. Isaiah 58, 13 through 14, God would say this, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure, are talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It is a promise from your God that as you Sabbath and rest, the rest that you are looking for is not found in anything else. I don't care how much golf you play, how much shopping you do, how much work you get done at the house, how much laundry you catch up on. I don't care whatever you're seeking your rest in. Christ is saying that true rest is not only found as we rest and we worship him, but that your true rest, your true Sabbath is Christ Jesus, your Lord. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And you are to worship him as your God. And as you do so, you find that this self-filling cycle happens, that as you obediently worship and you spend time in prayer, you spend time in fasting, you spend time in meditation on God's word, you spend time in worshiping him through song, as you observe the sacraments, as we did this morning, the Lord's Supper, 
you will see that what you are searching for is found because your soul is yearning for your God. You see, so how do you love your God? By obeying the Sabbath. You're to love your God as a loved one. Once a week, we, we all set aside time, often a day for the ones we love and rest together and enjoy each other's company. If you're married, you know that you must do this. If you're dating, you know this is important as well. If you have a friend, you know you must make time for them. But in the same way, even more so, we set aside the Lord's day to rest in him as we enjoy him because he has saved us from our helpless plight. That is a love that rests in God. That is keeping the Sabbath holy. The challenge is here for us is so often that we just uh, omit observing the Sabbath because we say, it's not that big of a deal. I can sleep in a couple extra hours or we can say that even though we leave here that we can go about our way. But what I'm convinced of from Scripture that we will begin to demonstrate here more and more so, it's our prayer that today will truly be the Lord's day. We saw this modeled well for us in that, that uh, video well as a spirit and truth as uh, most churches as the Lord's day, they will uh, leave from here and uh, we won't see each other for the rest of the week. But what we're hoping prayerfully to do is to have uh, time as we eat together. If that means that we're gonna stay here and bring in potluck, that's what we'll do. If that means we all go out to Bollywood and have $3 tacos or three or two, three dollar combo, whatever that is. I don't know how much it costs, but I will eat it all. <laughs> but we'll do that. But then come back together for prayer, corporate prayer, and come back together for teaching on Sunday evening to observe the Lord's ordinances. Because you see that we profane this day by just idleness. If you see the Sabbath is just a day where you can just check out mentally, from a tough or busy work week, you will always be tired. So how do we love our God? We see that this is the great commandment that all of the law and prophets are hung on, hung on this, to love our God and to love our neighbor, which we'll cover next week. So how do we love our God? By keeping his commands on how to love him. I love how John says this in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'll leave us with this this morning, a quote from our early church father, Augustine. If your heart is toiling with this, as mine has this week, of how to obey, even though, as we said at the outset, our heart and our mind, our soul and our spirit are so set against these things, that are that are. Our very souls oftentimes feel like these are burdensome, even though scripture says they're not. Augustine would say this, God command what you will and grant what you command. God command what you will and grant what you command. Church, may we by God's grace love him well this week as we're dependent on his grace to do so. Father, thank you. Thank you for your name, that it is great. God, thank you that you alone are God, and that there are no other gods. We thank you that you have given us your commands of how to love you well, because in so we're not left to wondering, but we are freed up to worship freely.
We're freed up to love you rightly. God, thank you that you are so holy and kind and righteous as our King. And Father, thank you for building into our weekly lives a time to stop, to reflect and remember your goodness towards us. And that while we are yet sinners, God, when you look at us, you see your son's righteousness. And because of that, we can rejoice and we can sing aloud and we can worship you rightly. We can leave from here this week knowing that we don't have to wonder if we're loving you well when we're loving you as you have commanded us to do so. May we love you rightly. God, we love you, but thank you for first loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.